This episode of Untold Killing contains graphic descriptions of violence, sexual violence and mature themes. Please listen with discretion. On the night of the 11th of July 1995, thousands of Bosnian Muslims were confined within the factories in Potocari, around the UN base in Srebrenica. It took no time for it to become a concentration camp because we couldn't move from the factory anywhere. We couldn't even go out for basic needs. So people improvised the toilet in the corner of one of the halls of the factory, which happened to be next to the entrance where we were sitting close to, and we could have whiffs of this unbearable smell. But what was worse was that this opening in the wall was open towards the river, And we could, in the night, hear screams of people being murdered in the river by Serb army. They were randomly picking men and taking them out of the factory and killing them on the riverbank. Srebrenica had fallen earlier that day. It was conquered by Bosnian Serb soldiers, who now had the UN base surrounded. That night was awful. The UN had basically retreated that night. I was seeing babies being taken away from their mothers. I could hear screaming. The noise was unbearable. And you couldn't believe it was coming from humans. I was having a nervous breakdown. It was horrific. I sat by a crane, and that's where I spent the whole night. That day, the Serbs arrived. Some of the interpreters explained what was happening. They tried to reassure us and say that Mladic was going to come. Ratko Mladic was now in control of the fates of the tens of thousands of Bosnian Muslims in Srebrenica. And it was only a matter of hours before they would find out what he had planned. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. The morning of the 12th of July was full of uncertainty for the Bosniaks. They knew nothing good would happen that day, but they were in the dark about what exactly lay ahead. Here is Kadifa, remembering what it was like at the base. It was so full of people, we could hardly breathe. People were crying. Nobody knew what was happening to our loved ones. Would we ever see them again? Would we survive? In that horror, you were fearing for your life. After all, the Serbs were now in control. We knew what we had to be prepared for. But we still hoped. Maybe they wouldn't abuse us. 
rape us, kill us. But they did. On the 11th of July, after the Bosnian Serb army conquered Srebrenica, Ratko Mladic held two meetings to discuss what would be done with the town and with the refugees. And early on the 12th, he held one more meeting to finalize arrangements for the Muslims. Colonel Karamans and Dutch UN commanders were present, and so were three unofficial Bosniak representatives. Just like the day before, there is video footage of parts of the meeting on the 12th of July. You can see the three Bosniaks uncomfortably shaking hands with Mladic himself. Ratko Mladic is at the head of the table. Everyone is chain-smoking. In this meeting, Mladic makes his main point to the Bosniaks. He says to them, I told this gentleman, meaning Nesib Mandic, the school teacher who was also at the meeting the night before, I told him last night that you can either survive or disappear. Mladic says the Bosniaks will have a choice of either staying in Srebrenica or leaving, being deported. Now, this sounds like he's giving them a choice, but Emir Sulegic, the director of the Srebrenica Memorial Center, explained to me that this entire meeting was designed to make it look like he was giving them a choice. And even the very existence of the video footage of the meeting had the same purpose. Mladic is there, he's feeling like, um, like a god, and he wants to go through the motions because he wants to be able to provide legitimacy for what he's doing. So the Dutch actually pick by accident three people from among some 30,000 people who were in Potocari, who came there seeking their protection. And they pretend that that particular group of people randomly picked from among the refugees is actually representing the legal and political authority of the enclave of Severinsa. And then they take them these poor people, they take them to the to this hotel where Mladic actually treats them like, um, well, he openly threatens them that they will disappear, you know, where he goes on these rants, and he was actually prone to these rants. And the Dutch are sitting there and keeping quiet. So they've heard every word. They've heard that, you know, his threats to these poor people, that they will disappear, and nothing, nothing. I mean, I understand the pressures of the situation. I understand that Tom Caramans' concern, one of his concerns, of course, had to be to make sure that his soldiers are alive, that they get out alive. If you need uh, the help of the soldiers here from the battalion, they are willing to assist as well. But that kind of disregard for human life of the people that they were there to protect is just, I'm very rarely beyond words, but this is the kind of thing that still, 25 years later, leaves me speechless. Reportedly, the UN thought that getting all the Muslims to leave Srebrenica, deporting them, 
was the only way now to save their lives after they had failed to stop the Bosnian Serbs' attack on Srebrenica. And for the Bosnian Serbs, removing parts of the Muslim population was the first step in their plan for Srebrenica. And the choice for the Bosniaks, if you can even call it a choice, was clearly coded. Either leave and live, or stay and disappear. So it was decided that the Muslims would be deported to the nearest Bosniak-controlled city, Tuzla. But the Bosnian Serb commanders also said that they wanted to screen all Bosniak men between the ages of 12 and 60 to find those who were soldiers and, as they put it, had committed crimes against the Serbs. After the morning meeting was done, Mladic finally drove over to Potichari to see the situation firsthand. At this point, the UN was still protecting the Bosniaks at the base, but they were so overwhelmingly outnumbered that Mladic and his soldiers basically had access to all parts of the base. Mladic came at around 11 o'clock. People started walking among us with loudspeakers. The translators that worked for the UN saying not to panic. Mladic is coming in with troops, just coming to be informed. And they came in. And Mladic was 10 metres away from me. Five or six of his men with him. He had his short sleeves on, sort of imposing, full of himself. Suddenly, they started handing out chocolates and some bread to the crowd, children extending their hands. This is a video of the Bosnian Serb soldiers throwing out sweets to little Bosniak kids, who are yelling, give me one for my brother and sister. They probably hadn't had a single sweet in the last three years. The soldiers have smirks on their faces. The same thing was happening with adults, only they were giving them bread instead of sweets. Kada felt uncomfortable about the whole thing. But I was seated. I don't know if it was fear or something else. I couldn't stand. I sat down. The sun was baking and I burned all over. Blackened like a skillet, as they say. And I just watched. And I was a little angry that people were extending their hands for that bread, to take it from them. If the time had come to die hungry, let us die. A camera crew was still following Mladic, even as he visited Potichari. Here he is speaking to a mass of refugees, all of them looking exhausted and worn out, and he's telling them not to worry, that soon buses will come and take them away. He emphasizes that they should let the women and children go first. In all of the footage, Mladic keeps repeating the same talking points over and over, that the Bosniaks had the freedom to leave and no one would be harmed. But Kada remembers a moment when it was obvious that this was all for show. At one point, the cameras disappeared. Mladic is standing there with five or six of his people, 
and he says, Serb brothers, take this opportunity. You will never get one like it again. And I'm watching and thinking, God, what kind of opportunity could that be? Mladic was using his camera crew to rewrite history in real time. The video footage would present an alternate version of events to the world. Kada was still sitting not far away from Mladic, with her entire family, including her brother Ekrem, there with her. She remembers looking at the soldiers around Mladic. Mladic was in a colourful uniform and so were his people. And then they called on my brother. I looked over and he was walking to them. He was in a short-sleeved shirt. I wasn't particularly concerned. Then Ekrem came back to take his jacket. He had a leather jacket. I guess he took it, I thought, just to have it with him. Although the summer was hot, the night was cold, terribly cold. And off he goes. I say, Ekrem, where are you going? He says, don't ask. My Ekrem was taken. And we never saw him again. Shortly after Mladic visited Potichari, the deportations began. A mass of buses and trucks arrived at the base to take the Bosniaks away to Tuzla. But remember, before they'd allow any men on the bus, the Bosnian Serbs wanted to filter out anyone who, according to them, committed war crimes against the Serbs. The news that this is what the Bosnian Serbs were doing filtered through to all the people around Potichari. Here's Yasmin. I remember one time my mother panickingly tossing around the stuff that she had in her bags and my father asked her what are you doing she said like didn't you hear that the serbs are coming in to the factory searching everyone and if they find something uh, that resembled weapon they would kill that person so she found cutlery and she ran outside and just threw them away the Bosnian Serb soldiers would go around the refugees and try to find any reason to take them away. Even reasons like someone having a butter knife among the things they'd packed in a panic when fleeing their home. They'd say that they had refused to abide by the rules of surrender that Mladic had outlined. Yasmin remembers another instance when it seemed like the Bosnian Serbs were planning something sinister. The next thing is that a man dressed in a army clothing, came among us, taking down our names. He was speaking our language, so we thought it might have been some of us. He took down the names of me and my father, and I was, you know, as, as a child, I was like beneath my voice trying to say something, okay? Why are you taking only my father's and my name? The person who was taking down names said that they were ordered to make a list of people in the factory. So I was like, okay, but why aren't you taking the name of my mother? She's also there. And I never got an answer to that question because, you know, I was a child, nobody listens to a child. 
Later on, we would understand during the day that it was actually the Serb military that was dressing in the UN uniforms and that they were actually strolling among the people inside the factory. It would turn out that the list was a, a slaughter list. The deportations began on the 12th of July, but they would continue all throughout the 13th of July as well. There were that many people, but understandably, everyone wanted to get out as soon as possible. When the buses and trucks started arriving, it was a race to get on first, to escape the hell. It was absolute chaos. My late father was with us, and I told him to come with us. Maybe he could get through. As we were getting through that mass of people, they started dividing the men from the women. My father somehow managed to get on the truck with us to the free territory. Maybe it was destiny. But even when we got to the free territory, they were still separating people and tried to get my father. But he managed to get to safety. That's maybe one single good thing that happened. Did you feel any sense of relief on that bus journey out of Srebrenica? We were both hoping and not hoping at the same time. We had become accustomed to the horrors the Serbs were capable of. On that truck we were heading towards uncertainty. It was a 50-50 risk and then whatever God allowed. They shoved us onto that truck like cattle. It was overflowing with people and unbearably hot. We could barely breathe. My daughter needed to go to the toilet, but she didn't want to do it in the truck. And she was squealing. We found some paper for her to use, but we didn't dare throw the paper away in case the Serbs would come onto the truck to kill us all. But not many of the Bosniak men were as lucky as Kadifa's father. Most of them got separated from their families and led away just as they were about to get on a bus or a truck. At first, the women didn't know what would happen to their husbands and sons after they were taken. Maybe they thought they were going to be interrogated, or at worst, imprisoned. But Kada back at the base quickly found out that this wasn't the case. I needed to go to the toilet, and I saw that the cornfield was full of quite high sweet corn. As I got to the field, I saw three dead human bodies. I was horrified and ran up towards the house and saw nine more human bodies. And all of a sudden, I no longer needed to go to the toilet. I could no longer feel hope, fear or desire. I felt completely empty. The UN were meant to be supervising these deportations. 
And there were even reports of a Dutch soldier on the same day witnessing a Bosnak man being taken to the back of a house, made to kneel and shot on the spot to the back of his head by a Bosnian Serb soldier. But by this point, nothing would stop the Bosnian Serbs from doing whatever they had planned. They were in complete control. So in that field, Kada saw one of the first glimpses of what the Bosnian Serb soldiers would go on to do thousands of times over the next week or so. And all she wanted to do was to get out of there, together with her husband Sead. I told my husband Sead, we're leaving, anywhere. We just need to leave. We saw a load of buses and trucks lined up in Potocari. They had started letting people through the ramps, and we hoped they would let us as well. The only feeling I felt was my arm on Sayad's shoulder, so we could stay together. As my husband and I were waiting to enter the bus, a soldier came over and put a gun to my husband's head. They separated me from Sayad, and then I was put on the bus. She had said goodbye to her son the day before when he left for the forest. Her brother was taken earlier that morning. And now, when her husband was gone, Kada was completely alone on the bus heading for Tuzla. From the bus I could see a mass of people who had been captured and I was hoping I wouldn't see my loved ones. I saw about 500 people on one field who were on their knees, stripped to the waist, hands behind their back, and the bus slowed down, probably to force us to watch. On the other side, there was a sudden burst of gunfire. I saw a mass of people at the football field at Nova Kasaba. I just closed my eyes and hoped I wouldn't see my son Samir. After driving for a few hours, the bus stopped at the edge of a Bosnian Serb territory where the Muslims were let out. From there, they would walk towards the Bosniak controlled area. There was a river flowing in that area. We walked by the water and suddenly a woman screamed. There were still columns of Bosnian Serb soldiers passing by us. And they're shouting, you're all women, where are your girls? Because all us women dressed up the girls, tied scarves on them, dressed them so they looked unkempt and untidy, and gave them someone else's children to carry. So they all looked like small women carrying children. And that's how two girls were in the bus I was riding. A bit tall. Their noses were kind of big. And after we passed that road, as we came out, there was a tunnel. Behind that tunnel we were free. So we didn't have to hurry. We were already on territory that was free for us. We went down to the stream. I went down to wash myself a bit. And those two little girls, the tall nosy ones, they took off their scarves, took off their skirts, and they had pants and t-shirts underneath. 
They were two teenage boys who had dressed up as women and had managed to get on the bus and to escape. I thought, my dear darling boys, thank God you managed it. They certainly wouldn't have survived, certainly not. They were maybe 15, 16 years old. They certainly wouldn't have survived had they been dressed differently. Both Kada and Kadifa managed to get out of Srebrenica safely on the first day of the deportations. But Yasmin and his family, along with thousands of others, were still waiting at Potichari for their turn to go. And I sensed that behind me was my mother and then my father after her, because I could hear their panting. And the next moment, I couldn't sense my father. More on that after a quick break. A lot of the women, children and elderly were driven away on the 12th of July, like Kada and Kadifa. But Yasmin's family spent another night in Potichari. And so did thousands of others, because they didn't get to leave on the first day. They were all in this strange sort of limbo at the base, waiting until they could finally leave. And it was a limbo that the Bosnian Serbs were in charge of. They had the UN outnumbered many times over, and so had free reign over the base. We learned about the infamous White House in Potocari. This White House was where the Serbian soldiers would take women and rape them. Only afterwards, when we reconnected with the remaining of our family and my aunt and my grandmother, my aunt would, she would tell us after the war, her experience of uh, her mother, my grandmother, her mother-in-law and other women around her kind of encirculating her and hiding her under them. They had no UN soldiers around them, so they felt more insecure, more unprotected than us. She was pregnant seven months and when she would say, why are you doing this? They are not going to do anything to a pregnant woman. My grandmother told her that these people are not inhibited by anything. As long as you are a woman, you are in danger of being raped in that house. Later on, there was a testimony which as a grown-up person who was trying to gather also the stories of other people of Srebrenica, I read a testimony of a lady who was raped in the White House just after giving birth. So she was raped systematically kept by many Serb soldiers and only after there was a definitive decision that the civilians would be transported, she was freed. Now this happened for over the course of seven days, this rape. All of this horror was going on around Botticari. Hours were passing by and Yasmin remembers being in a strange state of being awake and asleep interchangeably. Time lost all meaning for him. Some things felt like they were taking ages. Some things felt like they were happening instantaneously. 
And when before Yasmin talked about how his family never let their spirits drop during the siege or the attack, now everything changed. We knew that nothing good is going to happen. We didn't know when it was going to end. The only thing we could think for ourselves is like, just let it, let it happen. They spent all of the 12th of July and the following night like this. But then, suddenly, on the 13th of July, it was their time to leave. Almost on a command, all the people stood up. It was midday, and we were funneled towards one of the exits from the factory. The moment I stepped out, I was blinded by sun. It was an immensely hot and clear day, and I couldn't see anything for a few moments. My father was carrying me on his shoulders while we were kind of on a snail pace moving through the factory. But as we exited, he put me down on my feet and I was walking next to him. Once my eyes got used to the light outside, the only thing I could see was like a long stretch of soldiers from two sides. I could see soldier boots and guns being pointed at us. And we were escorted through this cordon of soldiers towards the street. Then we were walking down the street aimlessly. After a while of walking, they arrived to where all the trucks were parked. And they were finally told what to do. One of the Serb soldiers just jumped in front of us and said, climb up, pointing at open tarp of a truck. So we started climbing up and I remember that I was the first one climbing up the truck and I sensed that behind me was my mother and then my father after her because I could hear their panting. All three of us were running down the street and as we were climbing we were breathing heavily. And the next moment I couldn't sense my father. So I swiftly turned back and saw a Serb soldier wearing glasses, having his sleeves tucked up, pushing my father with the gun away from us. I went numb at that moment. I, I felt so much pain. I was squeezing my, my fist so hard that all my body felt like like one huge spasm. Everything. I, I couldn't move. Inside of me, I was screaming so loudly. I didn't have strength to open my clenched jaw to scream. I was looking at my father, who was being pushed away from us. And the next thing that I remember was two uh, folds being closed on me, which was my mother trying to hide me in her clothes, in her skirt. She literally hid me under her skirt, probably so that the Serbs would not realize there was another boy on the truck. And we were looking at my father. The only thing he could, he could gesture was he put his index finger over his mouth as in shushing me, as in saying keep quiet and then he waved away with his hands as if he was saying keep quiet and just go on 
and the last scene I have of him was this and him standing holding a red hooded jacket of mine when they closed the tarp and when the the, the truck started going away we were in a complete pitch dark I could hear screams and cries of the women on, on the truck I was also uh, crying but silently uh, because I couldn't I couldn't voice myself and few moments afterwards a corner of a tarp kind of opened and a young uh, man jumped over into uh, into the truck I remember ladies at the bottom of the truck grabbing him and tucking him away behind the barrels which were on the truck and then throwing uh, bags of their clothes on top of him and we continued we were uh, driven somewhere we didn't know where and then after some time the truck stopped the driver of the truck came out cursing loudly at us with everything that he could muster Turks, Balis, animals, you know. He opened the tarp saying, you're gonna suffocate you cattle. Later on, I would realize that it was an intentional planned terrorizing of us because the side of the truck that he opened was looking towards the forest, which we knew had our men trying to run away from Srebrenica. And what we had to see was a constant shelling of that forest, as if they were trying to tell us that nobody is going to survive this. As the truck stopped, several Bosnian Serb soldiers jumped inside to see if there were any men or boys hiding on the truck that weren't meant to be there. I remember that my mother uh, kind of hid me between other women and herself they were leaned back to back several of them and she hid me in between them and then all of them threw bags on top of me but I could see through the forest of legs what was still happening inside the truck and I could hear what they were saying as the soldiers were coming closer to the part of the truck where this young boy was the screams of the women went louder finally when they discovered him ladies were literally begging the soldier to let him go because he's only a child he's young look at him he's malnourished but in vain unfortunately the boy was taken off the truck Yasmin said that he thought that the Bosnian Serbs' decision of which boys to separate from their families couldn't have been done purely by age. It was impossible to estimate kids' ages by just looking at them. And so he says that they were most likely doing it by height. He thinks that's why his own cousin had been taken while not other kids of his age. He was a lot taller than them. Yasmin was small. He said that he looked about five years old when really he was nine. That's probably why he was allowed on the truck by the soldiers in the first place. So, only after the older boy was taken off the truck, his mother took him out from underneath all the bags where he was hiding. After riding for a while longer, 
Their truck stopped close to the same place where Kada's bus stopped the day before. They got off the truck and walked towards free territory. The walk wasn't a short one, and Bosniaks from all the other trucks and buses who were let off around the same time started joining Yasmin's group. And among them was one of Yasmin's aunts. We found her on the street, and we were walking together. She was telling us that the oldest son of hers, which was four years older than me at that time, so 13 years old, was taken away from her. And she was sobbing. We could hardly understand her, what she was saying, because of all these sobs. And we we were also sobbing, you know. The, the, the whole communication was over sobs and cries and screams and pain. Then sometimes into this long walk, somebody screamed my aunt's name. We stopped, turned around, and there was a neighbor of ours from Drinjaca, another lady. She was screaming at her, I found your child, I found your child. Which was this older cousin of mine. So this cousin of mine had returned to us. After the incredible reunion of Yasmin's aunt and her young son, another one of Yasmin's cousins turned out to be walking in the same mass of people, and she came over to talk to him. For some odd reason, there were dozens of familiar faces for her to communicate to. But among all those faces, she came to me, hugged me so hard, I could still feel the the strength, the clench in her hug and screamed into my ear, they took my father. I, I couldn't say anything, I couldn't say anything. I just let her scream all of her pain out of her. Her scream was so piercing that it was echoing in the valley and, and it, was, it was chilling. And finally, Yasmin and his mother made it to safety. Real safety. And it was a bit of a shock to Yasmin. After this long walk, when we rejoined the military, uh, a cousin of mine who lived in Drinjaca and fled uh, Drinjaca before the war and lived in Tuzla during the war, came for us, picked us up and brought us home. That night, my cousin brought roasted chicken in front of us. And I remember I was dumbfounded by the color of it. It was so beautiful. It was so nicely smelling. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that it was real. And I was looking at, at my cousin with this inquisitive look as if I was asking her, what should I do with this now? Because I couldn't believe that there was food in front of me. She interpreted this as if I forgot how to eat chicken. So she was showing me, you know, with gestures, how should I take off piece of meat and eat? And I was thinking to myself, okay, I know how to eat, but I just can't comprehend that I, 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 I finally having a chance to eat this chicken. 
Most of the women, the young children and the elderly managed to get out of Srebrenica safely over those two days. But the men who were separated would never be seen by their families again. They were all killed in mass executions between the 12th and the 18th of July. The executions took place in many different locations all around the area. Rarely did they take place directly in Srebrenica. They often happened in groups of hundreds of Bosniak men, murdered over many terrifying hours. The largest execution that we know of happened on the 13th of July, where one and a half thousand men were killed inside a warehouse. The men were crowded inside, and the Bosnian Serbs threw in grenades while also shooting at the men at the same time. That was only one of many mass executions. During all this time, the Dutch UN soldiers remained in Srebrenica. The last of them were allowed to leave by the Bosnian Serbs on the 21st of July. The difficult thing about telling the story of this genocide is that it's as if the stories of the people that were killed ended when they were last seen by their loved ones. It's impossible to know exactly what happened during the hours and days when they were waiting to die, hoping that by some miracle they would survive. That's why, so far, you have only heard the voices of women and those who were children at the time. But there was a group of thousands of Bosnian Muslims, mostly men, who were, during the days after Srebrenica fell, still trying to escape the Bosnian Serbs. Thousands of men who, on the 11th of July, decided to walk through the hills of eastern Bosnia to Tuzla in order to see their families again. I was so scared. I thought that they were so close and I was just, you know, imagining what they would do to me before they kill me. And many of these men would get captured and executed as well. No one could kill so many people. Who, who could kill so many people? Hear the story of those men from two who survived the march next week on Untold Killing. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written, produced and edited by Jake Atayevich. Kate Williams is the producer for Remembering Srebrenica. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. Our consultant producer is Nadan Hadjic. A huge thank you goes to Elmina Kulisic for consulting on the show and for working closely with survivors. And of course, also to the women who provided English voices for Kada and Kadifa. Kim Sadiq and Abby Carter. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. If you'd like to see all the video footage that we mentioned in this episode or read accounts of more Srebrenica survivors, go to srebrenica.org.uk forward slash podcast. My name is Alexandra Bilic. Untold Killing will be back next week on Thursday.